encouraging word in a phone call. Don't be afraid of that. I think that would be very helpful for them. Being that he was just here recently and uh, connected with, with us here, I think that would be very, very meaningful for the seven part. Some encouraging notes to That would be a blessing to them. I was just made to think God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. Hmm. He had the attention of many, many, many people hmm. himself. The timing, I don't know the exact timing. Obviously, the car, the, the highway, and I doubt that um, Trevor, um, whatever the name is, Trevor, was in the wrong. But it had to be God's perfect timing hmm. to draw the attention of a lot of people. So we were visiting down there as pastors. This is neither here nor there, but something that touched me. And there was a, a Canadian, but we visit with Canadians or whoever shows up there. And so I was visiting with him, a young man, and I don't know what his name was, but I was impressed with him. Yeah, I know, Ruthie, but I don't. I don't know what his name was. But he was sharing something that touched me again. Um, he uh, has a, a farm, and he was farming, and he was, they were in a small house, 600 square feet or something like that, and they had some children, and they were, um, he had a, an offer to purchase another farm that he had in his pickup truck, and he was uh, looking for, uh, before he went to drop the offer to purchase off, he was checking up on his cattle at a farm down the road. And he couldn't find the one. And so he thought, well, i, I got to get going, and i got to drop this offer to purchase off. And then um, he kind of hesitated, and he thought to himself, the right thing to do is to find out what happened to that one. And so he widened his search a little. He didn't feel like he had the time. But in that, he talked to one of the widow ladies that owned a farm down the road. And in that, she gave him, uh, she didn't know where the cattle got to, but she gave him information that a widowed father down the road wants to sell her farm. And anyway, a long story short, that farm was the one that was meant for them. It was a really good price, and it was it filled the bill a lot better. And I thought of it, and he was sharing it in the context of, it was in that narrow little thing where God often meets us. But the right thing to do is to go look. He never did found, uh, find the cattle, whatever it was, that night, and it showed up the next time, and uh, he, he doesn't know where it was to this day. But in that little segment there where he was saying, but the right thing to do is to look for it, is where God gave him the information and guided the future for him there, directed the future. And I thought of David's uh, situation where they fed this 
they, they met this Egyptian guy and they spared him. They spared his life and they fed him. And after they fed him, it was him that they questioned where the enemy was. And it was because of their, uh, this Egyptian was saying, well, my uh, owner left me here because I was sick, so they, he left me here to die. And, uh, and they kind of took pity on him. And it was in that their little act of mercy that they found their direction. And how often does God work in our lives at that time in that their short little time of obedience? Anyway, I was, uh, I was blessed by that. Just a couple of thoughts in verse 7 yet. We're actually skipping the stone to see if we can get a couple skips before it reaches the other bank. 7.20 For there is not a just man on earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Uh, there is none of us here and none of us back there. And he goes on in verse 29, the one this thought that I tied together in my mind. Lo, this only have I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. It's not God's fault, but all of us sit here with the wrong tendencies. Also in verse 21 and 22, I love that their thought there. And uh, the scattered thoughts is, is what I love about him. It's not a weakness in my mind in, in what he has. But he says there, he says, uh, take no heed. You know, don't eavesdrop or listen to what people are saying about you. As, uh, as a boss or a preacher or a dad, let's picture it a boss. You walk around the corner and there's a few people talking and all of a sudden the conversation stops. And somebody gets just a tinge of red. And you can see, you can read their mind. They're wondering, did he hear what we said? And here there's a verse that says, don't, don't eavesdrop and don't listen. Because you know how often you yourself made a statement that wasn't meant for everybody's ears. So often we talk, and we take this too lightly, we do. But he's saying, hey, don't. Don't try to hear what people are saying about you. It, it doesn't do any good there. You, you might as well just forget about that there. Ecclesiastes 8. Who is as the wise man? We're, we're on a search for wisdom here. Who is as the wise man? And who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom, wisdom maketh his face to shine, and the boldness of his face change, shall be changed. I like how one manuscript says that last phrase: "Wisdom lights up a person, lights up a person's face, softening its harshness." Wisdom does that. We're thinking of wisdom. We're searching for wisdom, and we know this wise man said once the. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I was thinking about this and meditating on this here. He says, who is the wise man? And Ecclesiastes 8, if you read down over it and don't step back, it's a little harder to appreciate it. 
But as I was seeing where he was going with different thoughts here, and I was trying to sort it out and get the message here, where, where do we get wisdom? Who is a wise man? And I was studying this, and it seems to me one word kept coming to me. If you were to describe a wise man this morning, and you were to do it with one word, what one word would you use? You know, I was grabbing for it. Knowledge, or creative, or enlightened. What one word could you use to describe a man that is wise? And as I was looking at the the thing that he's covering, the material that he's covering here, one word came to me and it kept bumming me out. Because I really don't want that one word. And it's obedience. And I, I, I got a problem with, I think we preachers talk too much about submission and obedience. And oftentimes it is, you're not agreeing with me. Or you're not, and, and yet as I look at what makes a wise man, and I want to try to, okay, I said to myself, how can I put a positive spin on obedience? Because when I start talking about obedience or submission, everybody writes me off and they get a glazed look on their face and they, uh, start playing with the button on their car uh, keys or something like that. They're about ready to go. We don't like submission. We don't like obedience. But as I step back and look at what he's trying to teach us here, what is a wise man? What is a person that has wisdom and in the context of things here? And then I was thinking about Jesus. Jesus is talking about a wise man and a foolish man, about building. Uh, and he said, there's a difference. A wise man hears and a foolish man hears. But a wise man does it, and a foolish man doesn't do it. So, you know, we're trying to make life better. He was talking about last uh, last uh, uh, chapter, uh, to have a better life. This is better than that. This is better than that. And we're trying to get a grip on things for me. What is it in life that is going to make me wiser? What is it? Well, in Jesus, in Jesus' words... Here's how it was. This is one person heard it and they went and did it, and another person heard it and he didn't do it. And it's kind of a uh, an underlying annoying thing that keeps coming up to me. It, it's about obedience. It's about obedience. In the fifth commandment, he lays kind of the groundwork for children. He says, honor your father and mother or be obedient to your father and mother. In verse 2, I counsel thee, keep the king's commandments. And the context here is government or or, uh, president or that kind of thing. I counsel thee to keep the king's commandments. And that in regard of an oath to God. Be not hasty to go in and out of his sight and so forth there. Verse 5, whoso keepeth. The commandments shall feel no evil, and a wise man in his heart discerneth both the time and the judgment. And it was impressed on my mind again as I read over this. You're, 
you're not keeping the king's commandment because he deserves it. And you're not like a resistance movement of the day. They're against, um, they're against everything Trump says and does. They try to make him look like a fool. And what they say is resist. We will resist till we bring you down. We will resist. We as uh, Christians feel uncomfortable with that. Uh, but uh, we, you know, sometimes we do hear Christians take sides and say, well, Obama was this or Trump was that or this or that. Well, the, the, the idea here for Christians isn't that they deserve your allegiance. The idea is that you are obedient because that's, that's uh, what, what for office they were called to. And you're obedient because of your commitment to God, not your commitment to the United States. And I don't know, somewhere that breaks down when they asked you to do something ungodly. I was up getting uh, TSA uh, pre-approval so when you fly you can get in the TSA fast line so you don't have to stand in those long lines. And the lady there was saying she was nervous at first giving all the information and fingerprints to the U.S. government. But she said, within a few years we'll all have chips in our body anyway. And I said, uh, do you think that, you know? And she said, yeah, that, that's where we're going there. And I, and I don't know where you would stop that obedience. But what the lesson is teaching here, a wise man, the difference between a wise man and a foolish man as we sit here together is a person that learns obedience. Not because they deserve it. Your boss may be a very unhandy person to work for, very miserable, very unfair, very unappreciative. But your obedience to him isn't based on his deserving it. Your obedience to him is because of how he's a Christian. It says, and that in regard of the oath of God. I don't agree with President Trump or President Obama because I agree with him, or I don't obey him because I agree with him, or that he sounds reasonable, or that I agree with all the things that he stands for, but we agree, we, we are obedient as Christians because that's what we're called to. You know, if Moses would have said, if God said to Moses, cross the Red Sea, and Moses would have questioned that, he would have said, well, let me take a poll first. Well, let me see if, well, can we, and what it comes down to is that when we think, when we are disobedient, sometimes we think our way is better. Our decisions, our deductions of life and, and the situation we're in are better, and that's why we'll disobey but it's not based on that. It's based on obedience because of our commitment as a Christian. You know, it comes to trust. This thing of obedience comes to trust. Say your boss is really unhandy to work for. Or say it's closer. Say it's your wife or your husband is really hard to get along with. 
and you're struggling with that. And you're thinking, okay, he was wrong in this, or she was wrong in this. The Bible says we as husband and wife are to submit to one another and not to demand our own way. And so we're, we're to be obedient to one another, if you will. And there's a, and, and sometimes you say, I don't feel like obedience. I don't feel like they deserve it. But it's not that they deserve it. They don't. They absolutely don't deserve it. They're absolutely, the, the deductions you make are probably right, that they're on handy to live with, that they're not fair. But the obedience isn't based on that, it's based on faith. The obedience is based on, you trust God that when He says, you follow me here through the Red Sea, and I'm going to bless you, you say, you know, that doesn't make sense. What's going to happen to the children in the Red Sea? If we walk through the Red Sea, what's going to happen? But Moses and, and company went through the Red Sea, through horrible times, and it came down to their obedience, was their, their faith in God was strong enough to obey His Word. Through it all, I love that song, through it all, I learned to trust in Jesus, I learned to trust in God, I learned to depend upon His Word. Obedience to me is an annoying word. I, I really don't want to obey. I, I don't want to hear one more sermon in my whole life about submission. I just, uh, I, I'm tired of submitting. But a wise man obeys. And when he obeys when it's hard through the Red Sea, it's because his faith takes him through. Your faith is strong enough. It says in verse 12, Though a sinner do evil a hundred times, and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. We have a better life if we submit. And I know you have to step back. I hope you could follow my uh, thinking as we looked at his thoughts there. That wisdom comes down to obedience. Verse 8 and 11, kind of, uh, verse, or chapter 8, verse 11, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the Son of Men is fully set in them to do evil. People feel safe doing wrong in a climate like what we live in today. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes 9, I like this here, the poetic setting here and the truth in it. I've served something as he's thinking about this, the fastest runner doesn't always win the race. The strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. The wise sometimes go hungry. The skillful are not necessarily wealthy. And those who are educated don't always lead successful lives. And when you look at life, you know that Solomon is right. That's how it is. You see a person, you think they should be successful, and they're not. And you see another person, and you think they shouldn't be successful, and they are. And sometimes it doesn't make sense and it's timing and, and that type of thing. 
I won here in 9.13. And he's got a story here in chapter 9 and 13. And he's talking about a poor person and the city was going to be overtaken with an army. And there was a poor person in that city that stepped up to the plate. And he had the thinking and the wisdom to save the whole city. But he said afterwards it was unappreciated because the person wasn't anybody. He was a poor person and it wasn't remembered very long. And not many people thought much of it there. And I'd like, to, I'd like you to, to think about that for a little bit. Uh, James says, you know, you as a Christian church, you kind of despise the poor or you look down on them. And yet, he says, a lot of times the people that you're lifting up, the people with position or the people that have money, they're the ones that are running over you. But you, you kind of don't take the poor serious enough there. And it's mentioned here, and it's mentioned in James, it's a tendency for us as people to be aware of somebody with success or somebody with position. And we can, you know, oftentimes I can do it, instead of saying money, I can do it saying us in the ministry. You know, sometimes people will recognize your your spot in life and so forth, and that's okay. But we as a ministry, or minister's wives, if you will, can take advantage of that. We can say things as the final authority. We can, or a wealthy person sitting in a room says, well, here's how it is. This is the right thing to do. Or in a Sunday school, a wealthy person's wife or a minister's, pastor's wife can speak into that situation and kind of speak down to it and kind of like let everybody have their little say and then kind of wrap it up. Kind of our words carry weight. And what he's saying here is, you know, a person without position or money even when they do something good, gets pushed aside a little bit. And I think there's something here, people. I think there's something here that we left pastors, our rich people, our successful people up too much. And we hold them up as if they're more important. We want to talk to them on our way out of church or we want to talk, we want to visit with them. You know, I want you to to shake any bias or, or shaking, but I want this to sink in. How much different do you think the rich man would have felt if he would have taken time to talk to Lazarus when he was alive? How much, how would have that scenario changed for the rich man? Uh, he wasn't condemned for his money. He was condemned for the way he didn't recognize Lazarus' needs in the time that he had. And look, I know I'm speaking to the choir. I am so, so blessed. And it's such a faith builder. 
I often, people listen to me, I often get a call from one of you and saying, hey, I'd like to give somebody something, but I want it to be anonymous. And that's such a faith builder for me, and especially at the time when those when those needs, they shouldn't be aware of them, or when, when God brings those offerings together and something. But there's, there's something here. There's a city. And this poor man saved this whole city, and it wasn't appreciated for very long because he wasn't somebody. He was just, back then, he'd say, it, it calls him a poor man. He wasn't a rich man. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't something. How much difference people would have it been if the rich man, instead of talking to all the important people, if he'd had time for somebody else? We have this feeling like, you know, there's a verse earlier that said, so here's where we're all at. There's not one just man on earth that doesn't need the grace of God. Not one. And it doesn't say that the rich man was immoral. We don't have that to go on. From what I can tell, he lived pretty much like we do today. And the wisest man here wasn't against that. He said, go ahead, enjoy the, the gifts and, and know that they're from God. But, but, when you, when you think of Lazarus, reach out. Because you and Lazarus in front of God are exactly on the same plane. There's not one higher and there's not one lower. I don't care who you are, what you've accomplished, how important you are, how respected you are. God somehow has a heart for those who don't have as much. And you know, some of you worked in the streets in, in Reading and, and different places, and there's people, and you say, as, as, uh, from, our, from our setting, you say, get a job. Just get a job. But you're saying that to somebody that's mentally ill and has been beaten all their life and has lost everything they tried, and don't know how to make a good decision, don't have clear thinking, and you say, just get a job, Lazarus, you loser. Just get a job. But there's, there's a teaching here that he's saying, now wait a minute. When you judge people of less status, I think you're tramping on the Lord's territory. He somehow has a heart for the poor. For the handicapped, for the less fortunate, for the struggling, for the loser. To you, he looks so, so careless. You could tell him right off the bat a couple of wise decisions to make. Well, quit doing this, go and quit doing that and go to work more. Just, just do this. But he has some he has some limitations. He has some mental limitations sometimes. And the Lord says he's given some the ability to pull it together and some don't have that ability. And I, you know, when you look at this and you say, well, 
Why didn't they remember this guy saved a whole city? Well, there's that tendency in our midst and in our uh, upbringing. We, we're, maybe, you, who are you? Well, I'm a Martin. I'm a Shrock. I'm a Hershey. We, we, we feel like we have uh, some really good roots here and some really good family. And we do. And I'm not, and I'm not bringing that down. But we have to make sure that we don't, Forget about the Lazarus and make a poor and angry target. In the Old Testament in Samuel, Samuel it says, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. I suspect the reason that there is not a distinction made is because the truth today mirrors the truth that has always been. That the poor are not any more lazy, immoral, and unrighteous than those who have money. But somehow with, if you will, riches, our title, we look at people different. I wonder, thing I kept as I as I thought about that and meditated on that there. I wonder how different it would have been if the rich man would have made a call, or if the rich man would have reached out, or if the rich man would have encouraged, and if he had said, "I want to stay anonymous, but uh, this person needs my help." I wonder if it would have been any different that story that we have for our good. Let's kneel for prayer.